All right, you all may be seated. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of First John. First John, and you can park there, and we'll talk about it a little bit and get to a little bit of the text tonight. But tonight, as we begin our study in the epistles of John, First, Second, and Third John, what are often called the Johannine, Johannine, I can't even say it, Johannine, 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 all those are acceptable pronunciations, but I'll more often call them John's epistles because I'm bad at talking. Um, uh, but as we get into our study tonight, uh, what I want to do is uh, do something a little bit different and talk about why uh, we're studying John's epistles. Uh, we normally, like we've mentioned several times, we normally look at one passage of Scripture and expound its meaning, talk about what God is saying in that text of Scripture. But tonight I want to uh, look at a couple different passages throughout 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to look at why we need John's epistles. What about these three letters make them especially helpful to a group like this one? What are the themes and truths that speak to a group like ours in our specific spiritual needs. And so tonight, I want to help you to get to know the Apostle John, the author of this book, who calls himself the Elder. Uh, And then I want to give you later six reasons why we need to study John's epistles. Uh, As we begin tonight, I want to ask you a question. I want you to consider, when was the last time you talked to an older person? Uh, When was the last time you talked to someone much older than you? Uh, Maybe it was a grandparent or uh, an aunt or an uncle or a great aunt or a great uncle or maybe you helped someone across the street or uh, at the grocery store. When was the last time you spoke to someone older, significantly older? I think when you think of those conversations, you might think of Stories that someone like that might tell, or uh, the kinds of pauses that they take that you deem a little awkward, but they're just pausing and thinking a little bit, recalculating route. Uh, Maybe you think of the conversations you have with people like this, where the whole conversation is you helping them figure out their cell phone. Um, Maybe you think of all the things they tell you about that seem like they're from another lifetime and a whole economy ago. Uh, Back in my day, right? Um, Simpler times. Before that recession, three recessions ago. That kind of a person. When you talk to, though, an older person who is in the church, a godly older person, someone who has loved the Lord for a long time and has the perspective of walking with Christ for some time and in different seasons, there is a wisdom and a clarity and a simplicity that is priceless when you talk to this kind of a person. In fact, we have a couple of these kinds of people in this room. That's what's so helpful about them. That's what we get in the voice of John as he speaks via these three epistles, 1st, 
2nd and 3rd John. You see, at this point in John's life, around 80 or 85 AD, he is the last remaining apostle. And he was likely ministering at the church in Ephesus or around that area at that time. These three letters were written probably in relatively short succession to each other, all to the same church or small group of churches in the same area who were facing hardship, false teachers in their midst, who denounced Christ and the reality of the incarnation, perhaps. First John 2, we won't look at there right now, but First John 2 shows us very clearly there was some kind of conflict and church schism in this church, such that these false teachers took a bunch of people with them and left uh, the church. And they left a disillusioned and discouraged remnant, those to whom John writes in these letters. And so John writes these three letters to reinforce the truth about Christ and to encourage these saints in this church in their walk in the truth and in their certainty of the life they have in Christ and to spur them on in the sincerity of their love for God and for one another. I think as I just talk about that, you can begin to see how this is going to be helpful for us even uh, in this century. That's what 1 John is all about. 2 John also, though, is sort of a checkup. It's a follow-up letter, a reminder from John to this church to continue to live in love according to the truth. And then 3 John encourages a specific leader named Gaius in that church as he faces opposition from this man Diotrephes in this church. We'll get there. It's a fun one. Augustine says this of what he considers 1st through 3rd John, one book. He says, this book is very sweet to every healthy Christian heart that savors the bread of God. And it should constantly be in the mind of God's holy church. Augustine, wow. Not, not Augustine, but Augustine, all right? Uh, Hengel, another scholar, uh, later in time, he says uh, of these books, it's the voice of a towering theologian. I love that. Let's get a, just a taste tonight of this old, faithful voice of the Apostle John. You're in First John, look at the first four verses with me, just to uh, briefly look at this voice of John. He says there, he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be 
complete. Hearing this little prologue to 1 John, which really serves as the prologue to all three of these letters, John is telling us in such a beautiful way, almost poetic kind of a way, a simple idea. And it's this, that he, as the last remaining apostle, wants to pass on with wisdom and with clarity and simplicity the truth about Christ. As someone who walked with Jesus, as someone who ate with Jesus, as someone who talked with Jesus and prayed with Jesus, who watched Jesus die on the cross and who was a witness to the empty tomb. The Apostle John wants to make sure that the next generation of believers in the church and that we, centuries later, have the truth about Christ with clarity. And that with clarity, we'd understand what it means to have true life in him. Before we get to these letters and before we get to even the reasons why we need to study these letters, I want to tell you a little more about uh, our new friend, John. Jesus had called John to follow him, to be his disciple. Uh, Several times in the Gospels we get that account, but in Matthew 4, Jesus first calls Peter and Andrew from their fishing boats, and then he sees James and John, who seem to be business associates of Peter and Andrew, and uh, James and John are in their boat mending their nets with their dad, Zebedee. Awesome name, Zebedee. And James and John uh, are fishermen, and they leave everything they have in a moment's notice. They left their boats and their nets and their half-mended nets, and even their father, to follow Jesus and to become fishers of men, as Jesus puts it so profoundly in that passage. In Mark 3, we see these brothers, John and his brother James, given the nickname Boanerges. It means sons of thunder. Boanerges, sons of thunder. That was John and James's approach to life. I can identify. Earnest, fiery, thunderous, literally. They were bold and obnoxious. Who, who knows if they were the kind of daring, bold fishermen who would go out when there was a storm and say, well, the fish are biting when there's a storm, Right? Who knows if they were that tight, but the Gospels sure show us that they were bold in their approach and perhaps what they saw as a pursuit or a defense of truth. That was all they were worried about. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark 9, James and John, these brothers, these now fishers of men, they rebuke a follower of Jesus who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. But what's James and John's problem in this passage? This follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, I would have you know, isn't one of the 12 disciples. You see, James and John, they were the interns. They were the ones 
who were supposed to be doing the important ministry. Not this person who was not of the twelve. But Jesus rebukes them for their thunderous and unnecessary defense of his name and his ministry. They were in their earnestness defending what didn't need defending. You see, Jesus, the Son of God who came in power, defended by these sons of thunder with their brash and their bold defense. The sons of thunder. Turn to Luke 9 with me and look at Luke 9. We find James and John in this passage again. The sons of thunder. Luke 9, the end of the chapter. Look at verse 51. There we find James and John wishing to call down fire upon a Samaritan village that didn't want Jesus to come through and to stay at. James and John, in their prideful expectation, on behalf of their Savior, again, stepping in front of Jesus and saying, Samaritan village, why don't you want our rabbi to come and teach you and to perform miracles and to show you how great he is? Well, it's a Samaritan village. That's why, James and John. But look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, the patience and wisdom of our Savior. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. That was it. James and John, again, this, uh, these sons of thunder, bold for the truth, putting themselves at the forefront, thinking they're going to help. Perhaps the pinnacle, though, of James and John's earnest and increasingly self-important attitude is found in Mark 10. Turn there with me, Mark 10. Get used to this, we flip in our Bibles a lot. Mark 10 where James and John uh, do something that uh, you wouldn't dare do if you were a disciple. But we find them here doing this. And in fact, in another passage, we see uh, their, their mama, their mother, does the same thing either on their behalf or because they ask her to. We don't know in Matthew 20, but Mark 10 is where we are. And, and that's this. They ask of Jesus, look at verse 37 of Mark 10. And they said to him, grant us, they're speaking to Jesus, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is saying, it's an upside down kingdom. You don't deserve to sit at the right and left hand. You join this kingdom and you serve. And it leads to Jesus' uh, famous and rightly famous saying in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's gospel truth for us tonight, just to hear that verse. Uh, but it's the truth of the upside-down kingdom that, that we are to serve 
as we serve our Savior, Jesus. And that was his rebuke to James and our friend John in this passage. John, the son of thunder. So bold for truth, isn't he? And yet so lacking in the humility and in the love of his Savior. Instead, self-important and self-seeking in his defense of the truth. Stepping in front of Jesus, as it were. And yet, despite this big-headed demeanor that John had throughout the Gospels, we find John in Jesus' inner circle. John, he was, along with Peter and James, sort of the, the big three, if you will, of Jesus' disciples. We always find them next to Jesus at the most important moments. And I think that's why, and I think that's how, we begin to see a change in John's life. I think that's how we see a change in his understanding of what it meant to truly follow Jesus. Surely it was because of statements like Mark 10.45 that John began to understand what it meant to follow Jesus. But I'm sure it was also because he saw Jesus serve. It was because he saw Jesus love. It's because he saw Jesus live and live for the will of his Father. You see, John was there at the transfiguration, and he saw the glory of Christ. John was there at the upper room, and Jesus knelt to wash his feet. John was there, sitting beside Jesus, leaned up against him at the Last Supper. John was there at Gethsemane, when as he drifted off to sleep, he saw Jesus praying earnestly and seeking his Father's will. John was there at the high priest's palace when Jesus was to face trial in the middle of the night. John was there, and he was the last one there, the only disciple left at the foot of the cross as Jesus hung there and died. He died a sinner's death for you and me, that we might have hope if we would place our faith in him. That's the gospel. And John was there when Jesus died that death. Maybe it was somewhere along that way, in those moments with Jesus, that God did a work in John's heart, humbling him. And we'll see in a little bit, not emptying him of his boldness, but emptying him of his pride. Forming him, shaping him, helping him to see what great testimony he could be of all that he had seen and heard, what great effect his witness and his words could have for the gospel if his boldness would just be harnessed for a moment with the kind of humility and love 
that he had seen his Savior demonstrate so perfectly for an entire lifetime. Well, after the death of Jesus on the cross, again, John is there. John's there with Peter looking at the empty tomb of Jesus after Mary. In the book of Acts, in chapter 3, John is there, active in the early church, committed to prayer with the other saints. Uh, Look at Acts 4 with me. You need to see this. Acts 4. John is there before the council, before the rulers and the elders and the scribes, along with the high priest at the time. And he's there with Peter, and they testify and declare the name of Christ when questioned about uh, whose power this is by which they perform miracles. Look at Acts 4 and look at verse 11. This is, uh, this is um, Peter proclaiming, but with John right beside him, boldly, in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John. John, that son of thunder. They are boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. The name by which we must be saved. And they're proclaiming mano y mano before the Jewish leadership. They're saying This Jesus is the stone that you guys rejected and that is now the chief cornerstone upon which his church will be built. And they're proclaiming salvation in no other name but Christ. And then look at the telling sort of assessment in verse 13. Now when they saw, that is the leaders saw, the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, I love that, common men, they were astonished. And they noticed this, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. John, the fisherman who had given it all up to follow Jesus, the son of thunder, now a bold witness to the resurrected Christ. All that he had heard and seen and looked upon and touched, he would now boldly, and as a recipient himself of the love of Jesus, humbly testify to it and proclaim it all, the word of life made manifest. Throughout Acts, we see he continues to minister in the early church. He's based in Jerusalem at the time. In Acts 8, he travels from Jerusalem to the churches in Samaria to pray over them because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And I love that passage. It says, on the way back to Jerusalem, he took the time to minister to many villages throughout the region on the way back. By the time we get to Galatians 2, uh, Paul there calls John uh, and a few others pillars of the Jerusalem church. A beautiful picture. And so as he writes these letters, John, 
is there in Ephesus. Again, boldly testifying via epistle now of that which he had heard and seen and looked upon and touched in the word of life. It's the very truth about Christ. And so I am thrilled for our Bible study this quarter to step into the study of John's epistles because I believe the clarity and the simplicity of John's voice will help us to see the truth about Christ and what it means to follow him. Uh, with the remainder of the time we have left tonight, I want to give you the reasons why we need to study John's epistles. I'll give you, and we'll move fast, six reasons why we need to study John's epistles. The first is this. We need to study John because John's, uh, we need to study, excuse me, John's epistles because John's voice will broaden our perspective of Scripture. John's voice will broaden our perspective of Scripture. For some of you, this quarter, as you join us, join our ministry, it will be uh, sort of a fire hose of truth that you're drinking from. Uh, you'll be taking in as much as you can on Fridays and Sundays and maybe Sunday nights with us. And it might be tough. Uh, others of you, I pray, who have been with our ministry, uh, these epistles will be a poignant reminder, sort of cold water in the face for you of the importance of reading your Bible and studying your Bible. Having just studied the book of Jude at retreat a few weeks ago with some of you guys and now studying John's epistles, I had asked the same question that we asked at the beginning of the book of Jude. When's the last time you read 2nd or 3rd John? Probably not recently unless your Bible reading plan took you there. Even with 1 John, do you know and understand and live out the truth in 1 John, even if they're familiar to you? I think so often we take for granted our ministry's emphasis on studying the Word of God such that our ministry does that, but do we do it as individuals? And I want to challenge you on that. See, if you join a small group, it's what you find yourself doing, studying the Bible. If you come on a Friday, it's what you find yourself doing, studying the Bible with us. If you come on a Sunday with us, it's what we do on a Sunday, multiple times and in different ways. It's why we're doing the, the how to study the Bible class, because we want you to know how to study the Bible. Well, the more of your Bible you can not only become familiar with, but be able to grasp on a substantial level, and to understand on a heart level, the more formative and helpful these years will be for you for the rest of your Christian life. You see, if you can begin to study the Bible, uh, not just sit there and listen, but to understand and engage the very truth of God's Word, even in books and in places that you have not ever looked at, like maybe 2nd and 3rd John, or for some of you, 1st John as well the more helpful these college years will be. Sometimes people ask me, uh, what is something you would recommend all college students do? And one of my first answers is uh, to tell you, read your Bible, but like all the way through in your times in college. Uh, you have more time than you'll ever have. Just trust me on that. 
Uh, and so try it. Maybe this year or maybe in the next couple of years as you're in college, uh, read the Bible uh, cover to cover, so to speak, but maybe not in that order, but read it all the way through and begin to study it and understand God's Word on that kind of a deeper level. I think, though, specifically this series will serve to expand our perspective on Scripture, uh, to help us understand from an angle that we may not have experienced quite yet. You see, I, I think that so often we understand our New Testament, especially through the lens of the Apostle Paul, uh, which is good and godly. That's the way that God designed his Scripture, uh, in large part by the hand of the Apostle Paul. That's a good thing. It's God's good design, but... We need to hear John's full voice. We need to hear his firsthand testimony and his perspective of what it means to truly know Christ, to apprehend his character and nature, his salvation and his love and his life. One theologian says this of uh, these letters. These letters are not simply theological. They are theology distilled. And so I think these books will help us understand Christ better. There's simplicity and clarity in this faithful old voice of John. Now, in God's kind providence, as may be in the back of your mind right now, is I had decided, independently of the millions of conversations I have with Pastor John on a daily basis, I don't talk to him. I talk to him some, but not every day and not even all the time. But I had decided that we were going to study first through third John. And I was talking about that with Riley. We do talk every day. Uh, and then we get to, church to lo- get to church last Sunday, and our dear pastor uh, climbs those stairs and mounts the pulpit, and he says, I'm going to preach the book of Revelation. And I said, praise God. Because, if you know, the book of Revelation was written by our new friend, John, the Apostle. So what I want to do, actually, this quarter, as we go through uh, 1 through 3 John on Friday nights, and Pastor John goes through the book of Revelation on Sundays, is I want to, as a ministry, read the Gospel of John together, um, so that we can hear John the Apostle in full voice at full volume, so that we can hear what John heard and see what John saw and look upon and touch, as it were, the word of life made manifest in the gospel of John as well. So uh, we'll figure this out. We'll track our progress on Friday nights. We'll talk about it, uh, where we're at in the gospel of John, and then we'll you know, throw a story up or something on, on the gram and, and figure out how to track together through the, the gospel of John. Uh, this next week, let's read chapters 1 and 2 together of John. So Let's do that, and we'll talk about it uh, next Friday. Uh, I'm excited to see how our study of John's epistles, along with the book of Revelation and along with reading the Gospel of John, how that will broaden and strengthen our perspective of Scripture. Secondly, we need to study John's epistles because we need to learn how to walk in truth. We're going to look at 1 John starting next week, and we'll quickly work through it over the course of three weeks. It'll be fast, and we're going to do it by theme instead of going through it, uh, exp- uh, go through it uh, s- verse by verse. Second John will be also in one week, and 
third John will be in one week. I, I was reading this morning about a book club at the LA Public, Public Library in Venice who, who finished its first book as a book club uh, after 28 years. And I immediately thought, that's how it must feel to be in our ministry sometimes. <laughs> we go through books so slow, but so helpfully because it's verse by verse. We took all last year to look through Philippians, for example. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to I go fast through 1 through 3 John this fall quarter because I think it's helpful to see uh, from a bird's eye view the truth about Christ in these books. Uh, and then to look at Revelation with our pastor and then to look at the Gospel of John as well. Next week, though, we're going to look at the idea that God is light, that in knowing God, we know and we love and we walk in the truth, the very truth of who he is and how the world he's created ought to be. In a world where truth is relative, subjective, personal, and at a university that makes its living on research and building human knowledge, really, honestly, creating truth in a sense. I want us to, by our study in these three of John's epistles, begin to understand what it looks like as young people to engage your career and your passions as a Christian, as someone who stands firmly on the truth of God and his word. I think so often the way we think about holiness and about light, living in the light, and about living a godly life is contra the people that are not like us. We, we tend to think about holiness in the way that we justify our way of living, whether you're on the having fun equals evil kind of side and you're a goody two-shoes, or you are on the Christian freedom side and you are constantly trying to fight everyone who is a legalist in your eyes. Whatever side of the road you're on, you probably judge and accuse the other side. John, in his epistles, will help us to stop swinging the pendulum between legalism and so-called Christian freedom and to instead think and believe and live rightly, and it'll disarm us, really, and to simply and unabashedly walk in the light. That's all I want to say for now because I don't want to give away next week's sermon, but that is one of the most significant truths we will see, not just next week, but throughout our time in John's epistles. There's a third reason we need to study John because we need to see the integrity of life in Christ. We need to see the integrity of life in Christ, what I like to call gospel integrity. One of the clear truths we'll see in 1 John especially is the theme of life. Life that we have in Christ. Life eternal. If you're in 1 John, it's, it's what's in 1 John 1, 2. The life that was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life that was made possible by Christ. And then there is a new life that we see in 1 John as well. It's 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's new life. And it says there, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Verse 12 also is similar. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. New life and eternal life are found in Christ. It's what we see in the Gospel of John 1, verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. He talks about how we find life in Him. John, in his epistle, shows, show, shows us that the life we have in Christ is a life of simplicity and a life of integrity. You see, in John's logic, which seems to circle back on itself to strengthen and reinforce uh, the concepts found within, this theology of what life in Christ looks like is a life that abides, that lives in the same way from beginning to end. It's reminiscent of John 15. It's a life that walks in the light and abides in that truth. It's a life that abides in love both toward God and toward others. We see this kind of connection between light and life and love all throughout 1 John and echoed in 2 and 3 John as well. Take, for example, 1 John 2, 9 and 10. We see light and love. Love for brothers or lack thereof has to do with whether you are walking in the light or not. 1 John 2, 15 talks about light and love again, except this time for God versus a love for the world. And that has to do with whether you are walking in the light or not. 1 John 3 makes a connection between light and life this time. Uh, again, this idea of integrity, that if you are walking in the light, you have life in the Son of God. First John 4, famously, as you know, talks about love. But in verse 7, talks about the connection between love and life. Gospel integrity. You see, in these epistles of John, you cannot have it your way. You cannot just be a truth guy whose constant failure it is coincidentally always to be a love for others just always being bad about that but being a truth guy because that's not abiding according to john that's not integrity of life in christ you cannot be a christian who steps out into darkness on a thursday night or in private or with that other group of friends you can't cross moral and doctrinal lines in the name of love because to John, that's not abiding. That's not gospel integrity. How? How is this possible to be that consistent? You must first find life in the Son of God. You must be born of God. And that's a truth we'll look at as well. And for those who are born of God, who have new life in Christ, John says, and we'll see, you must abide in that life you have in him. You must abide in light and in love. And so in the epistles of John, there's an obvious integrity and consistency in this life we have in Christ. There's a fourth reason why we need to study John, and it's this. We need to study John because we need to refresh our concept of fellowship. We need to refresh our concept of fellowship. What does the word fellowship mean to you? 
maybe when you hear the word fellowship, you think of on-campus fellowship. Maybe you think of food at a table in somebody's apartment. That maybe you think of the second floor back room at your home church in San Jose. That maybe you think of what we call here after fellowship, fellowship, where there's always dino nuggets. Fellowship. What's that mean to you? In these three epistles, John shows us a concept of true Christian fellowship. It's the word koinonia. Maybe your high school fellowship was named koinonia. That's what that means. It's a shared participation in the scriptures. It's a communion we have uh, with God as believers. Look at 1 John again at the verse we looked at already, 1 verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, John says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, as we see it in John and in the Bible as a whole, isn't just a social connection between friends that usually has food at it. It's communion we have with God because of Christ and also with Christ and that we have with one another because we are in Christ. And John does not hold back in instructing these believers and instructing us to welcome and to facilitate fellowship, communion, genuine connection with those who are in this fellowship to support and to welcome and third john says to send them missionaries in a manner worthy of god that's true fellowship and that's what john encourages us toward and yet on the other hand for those who prove themselves to not be of this true fellowship and who even in these epistles oppose God's true fellowship in this church, John also does not hold back. John shows us how to appropriately guard from and stand firm against boldly and humbly and to protect the fellowship we do have. And so in these epistles, there is a depth and a seriousness and a meaningfulness to true Christian fellowship. To be clear, I'm not going to make a case to rename AFF or to pull you aside if you use that word wrong. <laughs> but I'm hopeful that our study in John's epistles will show us what true fellowship is and how and why we should treasure it like John shows us. See, the thing is, when you have true fellowship with others around you, you can indeed have food and fun and fellowship all together. But actual Christian fellowship is what makes it all that much sweeter when you do have food and fun. Uh, there is a commonality, not just in your interests or, or what year you are in college or in where you live or what you're like, but in shared communion with Christ. And so when food and fun run out and in 30 years when not everyone's your age, 
and colleges but a distant memory, my prayer is that from this study, you will have understood what true fellowship is in Christ. So that when you face life's trials and sorrows, you can do so leaning on and benefiting from and drawing upon the true fellowship you have with God and with others who know God. There's a fifth reason why we need to study John's epistles, and it's this. We need to study John's epistles because we need to re-examine our love. We need to examine our love. At the end of the Gospel of John, in, verse, in uh, chapter 21, we see that John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. He was so afraid to, and so humble at that point to call it out like it was, that that was him, but he talks around it if you look at uh, John 21. As well, we saw earlier, John was transformed by the love of Jesus in his own life, inspired by the example of the love of Jesus, even unto death. If you look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you can see the affection that John expresses in these letters. He, he constantly will say, beloved, 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 as he addresses the, these believers. He, he says, my children, or little children. And he says, in 2nd and 3rd John, those whom I love in the truth. There's so much love in these letters. In fact, 1st John speaks of love more times than any other book in the Bible. And so the love we've already said is so integral to life in Christ and to walking in the light is the kind of love that we need to learn and the kind of love that we'll see in these letters. Who better to learn it from than the one whom Jesus loved? Who, who better to learn it from than one of those whose feet Jesus himself washed? Who, who better to learn it from than the one who witnessed the very pinnacle of Christ's love hung on the tree. There's an old story about John, our friend John, written by an early church father, Jerome, in his commentary on Galatians. Jerome tells this famous story of who he calls Blessed John the Evangelist, who was of extreme old age at that point in Ephesus, before he even went to Patmos. John used to be carried into the congregation by the disciples uh, at the church in Ephesus. And John, at that point in his age, was uh, unable to say much, but whenever he was carried into the congregation, uh, Jerome says he would say over and over and over, every time he was carried in, simply this, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Jerome writes this, at last, wearied that he always spoke the same words, they asked, why do you always say this? And this is John's response. Because it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. Little children love one another. We need to look at the kind of self-sacrificial, 
God-centered, others-oriented kind of love that's here in these epistles. It's a love empowered by the love of God and a love exemplified by Christ on the cross. We look for love as humans from significant others. We know and see the love of our families or our close friends. We look for love and long for love from a perspective of our emotional needs so many times. But it's more often that we're thinking of how we feel, what we're owed by somebody, rather than how we can love others with the love of Christ. And so as we look at John's epistles, we'll see that love is not just an affection, it's action too. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so as we look at the epistle of love, from the apostle of love, we'll examine our love for God and our love for others and seek to grow in both. The last reason, finally, that we need to study John and his epistles is because John will show us Christ. John will show us Christ. There's no surprise. This is our final reason where we can land the plane. Like we see in John's life, we need to not just know about Christ. We need to know and truly know what it means to love and to follow Christ. To not just be around Christians in a a group, in a fellowship on campus, and to know just enough about Jesus to blend in and to have some friends but to genuinely and earnestly grasp that which John calls the word of life. And there's no better person to learn this from than the apostle we just heard the testimony of. One who lived life with the Savior and whose life was transformed by Jesus. So much of what we see in John's letters will harken back to John's gospel. That's why I love that we'll be reading it. But we'll look at it plenty on Friday nights as well. It's what was on his mind. It's what John's experience was. It's what he based his love for God and his love for others on. His life that he had with Jesus. And so we'll find ourselves tracing themes and phrases and truths back to John's gospel. There's a portion at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, uh, that is so helpful for us even tonight. John writes there, but these are written, he's talking about his Gospel, his whole book, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that by believing you may have life in his name. We looked at 1 John 1, 3, and 4 which tells us quite similarly that which we know and have seen with our own eyes, we proclaim to you that you may have not life there, but fellowship, John says. First John 5, 13, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. From salvation to assurance to full joy. This is why John writes, and this is why we need to study John's epistles, to see the life we have in 
Christ. Some of you, Lord willing, during this quarter, during this study, will see Jesus as he really is for the first time. Some of you may come to a saving knowledge and love of the Jesus we talk about and we sing about and we, we constantly are talking about in our ministry. Some of you will come to know Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Who had victory over sin and death and gave us his righteousness in that sacrifice. Some of you, and it has been my prayer in preparation for this study, will be saved because of this look at Jesus. In these short letters, we will see so clearly the benefit and the blessing of life in Christ. It's my prayer, my hope, and I think, I think that's what we'll see. Others of you in our ministry who do know Christ will, through our study, gain great assurance of your faith from our study. And I'm looking forward to that. It's the verse we just read, 1 John 5.13, that you may know that you have already eternal life. Some of you struggle to no end through sin and doubt and fear. Always spiritually looking over your shoulder, as it were. I believe these three little books will help you. They will point you to the certainty that you have in Jesus. And then for all of us, I, I believe that 1 John 1, 4, and then 3 John 4, where John says, those whom I love in the truth, I, I'm glad to see, I have joy to see that they are walking in the truth. 1 John 1, 4, And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I, I think that this study, as we see Christ, the resurrected Christ, that as we study these books and see and know these truths and begin to live them out, that we will find great joy in, in our own lives being transformed and seeing others' lives be transformed. I'm excited to jump into this study with you guys this quarter to sit at the feet of this old fisher of men, listening to the faithful voice of the Apostle John. Let's pray and ask God's help uh, for the rest of tonight and for the rest of this quarter as we study uh, 1 through 3 John. God, thank you for your word. Uh, we are excited for this study and to really be uh, exposed to all of John's writings through our pastors preaching on Sundays and through our uh, reading together of uh, the Gospel of John. God, we thank you for uh, this chance to see uh, your holy word uh, unpacked and in it we see the truth about uh, your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us, we ask, and aid us, we ask, Lord, through your spirit to understand uh, what may be hard to understand uh, and then to see the truth that we have come to love and will come to love more because of our study. So Father, grant us great grace, we ask, both in this study, Lord, but in our studies, uh, in our classes. Oh, Lord, we ask your help. We commit this quarter and all of the effort and the hard work, we commit these things to you, Father, the one who helps us and sees us through. 
and has given us everything that we have in this life and in the next as well. And so, Father, we thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.